Hello and welcome to this episode of Flotation's Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 13. Just a doubt. It is, Grandfather, cried Pam in a startled tone. She had recognized the things at once, and of course she came to the most obvious conclusion concerning them. You can't be sure unless you can swear to his having carried the bag and the wallet when he went away from Ripple, and you were not here yourself to know anything about it, objected Nathan, who prided himself on having a judicial mind and not accepting anything as fact which had not been proved inside and out. Pam thrust out her hand with an impatient gesture. She had never felt so much like fainting in her life. She wanted something to cling to, to keep her from falling, but there was nothing except Amanda, who was clinging to her and crying as if her heart would break. You do not know, and I have never dared to speak of it before, she said, plunging into her story with a desperate haste to get it told, and realizing now that it was too late, however very much better it would have been if she had never made Sophie keep silent on the subject. Grandfather came back one night in January, and and he took the money. Of course, he had a perfect right to what was in his own desk. Don stared at Pam in surprise. Why did she fling up her head? as if she were defying the whole world and championing the cause of her grandfather. The poor old fellow came home, and you never let on to us about it, exclaimed Nathan in amazed disapproval. 
You don't mean to say you really thought that any one of us would have betrayed him to the police. Why, he might have stayed hidden in our house all the winter, and no one outside the township would have been a bit wiser. How long did you... How long did he stay? Was he very much cut up? Dreadful hard on a man of his sorts to be forced into wandering? I don't know. I did not see him, faltered Pam, who could not repress a shudder as she thought of what Amanda had found in the ditch. Almost unconsciously, she moved a step nearer to Don and farther from the hollow. If you did not see him, how was it that you knew he had come? asked Don hurriedly. He had seen a black frown on the face of Nathan, and was dreadfully afraid of what he might say to Pam. Nathan was a justice of the peace for the district, but all the same he had his own ideas of how far it was wise to obey the law, which according to him had been made for the instruction of fools. Pam gave a little gasp as if she were choking, and then she went on with the story of that night, when she and Sophie had braved the dangers of the forest to find the person who called for help. She told how they had seen the wolves in pursuit of a moose and had made their way back to the house to find that someone had been there who had taken the money from the desk. She explained how she had firmly believed this to be the work of her grandfather, who, pressed by his dire need, had lured them out in order to get in and help himself to his own money. But it was not all his own money, objected Nathan. You say that twenty dollars of it belonged to Mrs. Buckle, and that was taken too. Pam lifted her head, and there was a stormy light in her eyes. Why should he not take the money that was in his own desk? As it happened, he had a perfect right to do it, too, for Mrs. Buckle had given it to me for him. She was so afraid he would be found by the police and punished for what happened to her husband, and she said there had been quite enough suffering and misery already. Are you trying to insinuate that my grandfather was a thief? No, I am not, said Nathan in his slow, stoic manner, and if I did think he was, you would be the last person who would hear it from me. All the same, it was a thief who knew the neighborhood pretty well, too. That means we have a thief living among us, a pretty low-down sort of rogue, too, seeing that he would lure a couple of defenseless girls out to take the choice of several ways of dying at night in midwinter, the snow deep on the ground, the wolves hunting in packs, I just wish I had caught the wrench red-handed. I would have choked the life out of him then and there. Oh, hush, cried Pam, aghast at the passion of the quiet man's tone. Remember that that thief, whoever he was, is dead. If he is dead, then it certainly was no one from around about here, said Don. We have had no one disappear from the neighborhood this winter. He had been running over in his mind all the persons of shady character that he knew, but none of them filled the bill. I do not think it was a thief, protested Pam. I think it was poor old grandfather himself who came to get the money from his own desk because he was so hard-pressed by want. Then, when he got clear of the house, he must have lost his way in the forest where would he have been heading for in this direction. Both Don and Nathan knew the forest like a book, but this question of Pam seemed to puzzle them very much. So far as I can judge, he would not have been heading for anywhere, answered Don, and Nathan nodded in complete acquaintance. If it was your grandfather, he must have been wandering for the sake of wandering, or else he must have lost his way in the snow, and that is not likely, seeing as how well he knew the ground. But we may know more about it, 
when we have scooped all the snow away. You and Amanda had better go back to the house and not worry about this. Don nodded in the direction of the hollow, and Pam shivered anew. Will you bring the remains to our house, she asked, and before her eyes came to a picture of what made her feel as if she could faint. No, we shan't. We shall carry him to the coroner, answered Don briefly, and then he hurried Pam off the scene and hustled Amanda until she turned on him with a childish impertinence on her tongue, though she burst into noisy crying before it was uttered. Her nerves were shaken by the tragedy on which she had stumbled, and she clung to Pam, sobbing violently. You must help me carry the pot of syrup. You can cry when you get home, said Pam in a matter-of-fact fashion intended for the soothing of Amanda. She had better wait until she has something to cry about, put in Nathan, who was also doing his best to speed their going. Pam picked up the pot of syrup. What about the trees I have not done? She said to Don, will you be able to go over them later or shall I come back presently? I will do them when I come back from the corner, replied Don, and then he watched until Pam and the weeping Amanda had passed out of sight. Gone was the joy of the sugaring. The grim story which the melting snow revealed was on every tongue. Nothing else was talked about or even thought about. A formal inquiry was held at the corner, the doctor's wagon house being used as a courthouse for want of better. Pam had to attend, also Sophie, and both of them told the story of the night alarm, describing how they had heard someone crying for help, and how, in spite of the fact that they knew wolves were in the neighborhood, they had gone out into the forest to hunt for the person they believed to be in difficulties. "'You must have been so mad to do such a thing,' exclaimed the doctor, looking at his daughter with horror on his face. He had thought so much of Sophie's level-headed discretion that he had never seriously worried about the unprotected state in which she and Pam had lived all winter, but the story of their wandering made him inclined to charge his estimate of his daughter's good sense. Of course Miss Walsh would not understand how full of danger such a search may be, but you have been reared in the forest or near it. If you had failed to hit the trail back to the house, you would both have perished miserably by morning. Would you have had us remain in the warmth and security of the house while someone was perhaps perishing within shouting distance of us? demanded Pam with a fire in her eyes. All this talk about taking care of themselves rather grated on her nerves. We should have felt pretty bad if harm had come to you, answered the doctor, looking up at her with a smile which completely disarmed her resentment. It was dreadful to Pam to have to stand in that crowded wagon house and tell the assembly of men that she had hidden the fact of the house being robbed, because she was afraid that if she spoke of her loss, it would put the police on the track of her grandfather. If you do not see the person who entered the house and took the money, how could you be sure that it was your grandfather who had done it? asked the legal gentleman in charge of the inquiry. I was not sure, said Pam, turning to him with wistful appeal in her eyes. I only felt that it must be grandfather who, pressed by his sore need, had lured us out so that he could enter the house, his own house, unobserved, to get the money. I happen to know your grandfather, said the lawyer, and anything less likely for him to do I cannot conceive. No, Miss Wash, if ever the story of that night is known, you will find that it is not your grandfather coming, as you pathetically put it, to take his own money, but a miserable scrap of a thief who, not content with robbing a lone house at night, 
made his wrongdoing into black crime by exposing two girls to risk of the gravest kind. It is deeds of this sort which call for summary justice, only the trouble is the willy rogues are hard to catch. At least the justice of heaven overtook this one, said the doctor as a murmur of anger went through the crowd, and Pam realized with a thrill how kindly was this feeling for her and Sophie. She had to listen meekly enough to the lecture which the lawyer read on her and her wrongheadedness in trying to keep what she thought was the visit of her grandfather from the police, but in her heart she knew that in similar circumstances she would do the same again. The verdict of the inquiry was that a man had been found dead in the forest, but that there was no sufficient evidence to show whether he had died first of his body and then been eaten by the wolves, or whether he had fallen a victim to the hungry creatures when he was making his way from Ripple. There was no evidence to show who he was from the size of his bones, but it might be Rack Prevail, but equally it might not. One thing only was certain, that it must have been a man who entered the house at Ripple in the absence of Pam and Sophie, for both Pam and Mrs. Buckle testified to this. Mrs. Buckle had marked, Mrs. Buckle had marked the papers with the little cross on the flourishes of one capital letter, which she pointed out while Pam testified to the stout little wallet being the one in which she had stored the $20. One thing was very puzzling to her, and that was the fact that the canvas bag only containing $7 in cash, whereas it should have had $14, this being the amount of money she had found in her grandfather's desk and left there against the time of his necessity. You are quite sure about this amount, the lawyer asked her, and Pam was quite sure. Conjecture was busy then, but it amounted to nothing more than conjecture, and the affair had been left shrouded in mystery. The remains were buried in a nameless grave. The lawyer would not permit it to be assumed that the bones were that of Rack Prevail, while the strictest search revealed nothing by which an identity could be set up. The torn clothes such as remained was what anyone might have worn. The boots had no name on them, and there was nothing else to go by. Pam came out of the wagon house at the close of the inquiry, feeling as if she would like to run away and never show her face in the neighborhood again. She was acutely miserable, and it did not tend to her to raise her spirits when a small boy leaned and ragged, who hung on the outskirts of the crowd, deliberately stuck out his tongue at her. She flushed scarlet at the insult, and turned away so sharply that she punted into Sophie, who was walking on the other side of her, and who immediately wanted to know what was the matter that she was so red in the face because she had been so pale before. Pam would not tell her. She would not even inquire the name of the ragged boy. It was such an emphasis of what she had been feeling, just as if her secret thoughts had been put into speech and shattered so that all might hear. Surely never before had a girl so hard a thing to bear. The very pity of these kindly folk did but add to her suffering. She thought of her mother, and it was only the urgent necessity for her safeguarding the interest of the dear home people that enabled her to bear the ordeal with patience. In her own mind, Pam was absolutely certain that the poor remains found in the forest were those of her grandfather. She found it best to keep silent about her grief. However, the neighbors were indignant that the idea should gain a moment's credence. They held it an insult to his memory that such a thing should be believed of him, 
as that he should enter his own house like a burglar and steal his own money. Yet everyone believed he had beaten Sam Buckles so sorely that the man had died from his wounds. Pam would have laughed at the absurdity of their standpoints if she had not been so sore at heart about it all. If only the remains had had anything upon them to prove her right, most of her troubles would have been over. She could have written to her mother to say that her grandfather was dead, and then Mrs. Walsh would have disposed of the boarding house and would have come out to Ripple with the other children. It was Pam's comfort that Jack was coming. Perhaps when he arrived and heard all that there was to be told, he would be able to persuade her mother that it was best to come. The maple trees on Ripple had not been tapped for so long that the yield was quite wonderful. Pam found herself in the position of being able to sell a couple hundred weights of sugar, as well as having enough home consumption for a long time to come. She reckoned that her trees had averaged 20 pounds weight of sugar each. Of course, higher averages had been made. Some people talked of having had trees yield 30 pounds each, but as Galena said, you would not find more than one tree in a few hundreds do as much as that. The average of 20 pounds was very high, and it was not safe to tap those trees again until next spring, as it would probably kill them. By the time the sugaring was safely over, the snow had melted sufficiently for the plow to get to work. Neither Pam nor her next neighbor, Mrs. Buckle, had horses for plowing. Mrs. Buckle did currently possess an ancient nag, knock-kneed as a roar, which drew her into meetings on Sunday, but the creature was not capable of very much in the way of exertion, and so the plowing on both farms had to be done by an outside labor. Nathan Grittis, having undertaken the work in addition to his own fields, his plow was going every day and all day. Then the wind veered around to the cold quarter. There was another blizzard, and they were back in winter again, to the secret disgust of Pam, who had seen enough of the snow to last her for that season. But spring snow is swift to go. The brown earth was showing, and a brisk but warm wind was blowing on the day when Pam went to borrow Mrs. Buckle's ancient horse to drive to Hunt's Crossing to meet Jack. It was amazing to Pam that the widow should be such a kind friend to her. Indeed, Mrs. Buckle's attitude was something remarkable, seeing as how her husband had met his death, but she had no strong prejudice, and common sense told her that Pam the stranger was in no way to blame for the long-standing animosity between the men who had quarreled for so many years about the fence, which, in point of fact, made no difference to either. Can you spare the horse? asked Pam, standing on the threshold of Mrs. Buckle's little brown house, her feet with difficulty refraining from dancing, and her face wreathed in smiles. Such happiness she had not known since her feet had first pressed Canadian soil, and she was thinking of what Jack would say when he saw the house and the land at Ribble, for the keeping of which was for him and the others she had borne so much. Why, yes, of course, replied Mrs. Buckle, with an answering smile. It is not Sunday, so I don't want to go to the meeting, and there is nowhere else to go in these blighted parts that I know of. You might go to school, Pam gurgled into happy laughter at her own small joke. It is easy to find things to laugh about when one is happy. Well, well, of course. I had not thought of the school. I might go there. The youngsters would laugh and nudge each other 
as we used to do in the old days, and they would wonder what Martha Buckle was up to. They would maybe want to spell something, and oh, my word, where should I be then? Mrs. Buckle leaned against the doorpost and fairly rocked with laughter while Pam left too, until Amanda came running from the outplace where she had been washing the breakfast dishes and joined in the merriment, although she had not the remotest idea of what the others were laughing about. Pam harnessed the horses herself, an accomplishment she had learned from Mrs. Buckle, and then she mounted the rickety old wagon and drove out on the trail, which led to Hunt's Crossing. She had asked Sophie to come with her, but Sophie, with a rare understanding of what that meeting would mean to Pam, had pleaded too much work at the same time, pointing out to Pam what a heavy load they would be on the homeward journey. Jack and his baggage, Pam and herself, the ancient horse might well object to so much weight behind it, and Pam was fain to see that excuse was reasonable. She was even glad, right down at the bottom of her heart, that she could be alone when she met her brother again. The sun was very hot today, and the old horse was not disposed to move very fast. Pam got so tired of trying to get some pace out of the creature that she finally got out of the wagon and walked on ahead with the lines over her arm. It was really pleasant walking, too. The grass was fresh and the flowers were spring-like on all sides, while over the forest was creeping a daily thickening veil of green. It was springtime, and the winter was past and gone. Hello, how far is it to ripple? A lanky young rose from the fallen log, which lay by the side of the trail, and advanced upon Pam before she was aware of anyone being near at hand. One long look she gave him, and then she shrieked joyfully. Jack! Why, Jack, how enormously you have grown! She cast the line from her as she spoke, and rushing toward the youth, hugged him rapturously. Pam, old girl, you are quite a beauty, exclaimed Jack, holding her at arm's length and surveying her critically. You always were pretty fair, as far as looks go, but now you are a peach and a daisy and everything else that is blooming. The life suits me, I guess, laughed Pam, and then she hugged Jack back again, just to convince herself that he really was here in the flesh, and because she was so very silly, she had to cry a little in memory of the fierce homesickness which had been upon her so often in the winter that was past. Hello, where is this ancient horse off to with such haste, demanded Jack, as he looked around in time to see that the horse had deliberately turned back on its tracks and was proceeding along the trail at a brisk walk. Oh, the wretched creature, cried Pam. I have had so much a task to get it along this morning. It seemed so old and spent. Now look at it. She and Jack had both started to run after the animal, and when they had heard them coming, it broke into a run, going at a shambling trot that made it exceedingly difficult to overhaul it. Moral, never leave go of the lines when you go on a journey with a racer of this description, said Jack, who was panting heavily by the time they had overtaken and stopped the horse. He had not the wind of Pam and seemed quite done up by the scramble. The lazy creature has got to turn around again and do the bit over to the river, she said, tugging its head round with great energy. Did you bring any books, Jack? Nearly all we possess, I say, Pam. What trees? Why, they are giants. Wait until you see some of ours on Ripple, cried Pam with an unconscious air. 
of proprietorship. Mr. Dubson told me that last fall he believed we had some of the finest timber anywhere around here. I turned it into money then, before anything happens to it, advised Jack as the horse went slowly along the trail to Hunt's Crossing. I must not sell any more just yet, she answered nervously. You see, it is not as if we had a clear title to the land. Was that grandfather who was found in the forest, Jack asked, his face very serious now. The tragedy looked more real now that he was here close to it. The descriptions in Pam's letters had been so necessarily meager. Then, too, she was not particularly good at letter writing, and so had failed to give many details which would help to the understanding of the affair. Now, when she had loaded Jack's baggage onto the wagon, and they had started back along the trail to Ripple, she plunged into a full and circumstantial account of everything connected with that grim find in the forest. Presently, Jack drew a long breath, made of an explosive sound as if he were letting off steam, and then burst into speech. Oh, I say, isn't it just rippling to think that I am really here at last? Pam, you were a brick to come when you did, and to stick by things for us. It would have been just wasted if you had not been there. My word, though, you must have wanted some pluck to live the life you have done here all through the winter. I could not have done it if Sophie had not stayed with me, cried Pam. You will love her. Jack, she is such a dear. Jack gave a wiggle, then demanded abruptly, Going to be married, isn't she? Yes, in June or July. It is lucky you were able to come to me, for I could not live alone at Ripple. I wish Mother and the others would come out this summer. The children would love it so much, and I am certain that Mother would not have as much anxiety as she has with their wretched old boarding houses. Does it pay better than it did? Not much. We are full up, and the takings are good, but the expenses are frightful, and they run away with any chance of making the things pay. It will be worse now that I have left home, for I could keep an eye on the kitchen in the evenings. You are all the time doing your best to keep expenses down. You will have to do it still, for I need looking after. But there is Ripple, Jack, just showing through the trees. Welcome home, dear. Chapter 14. From an Unexpected Quarter It is downright rippling, burst out Jack with an explosive energy. Then he dropped into sudden silence and said never a word while Pam was guiding the obstinate old horse as close to the door of the house as she could persuade it to go. She stole a glance at him once and then so awed by the expression of his face that she turned her head quickly for she guessed he would not want her to know how he was feeling. The horse had its own idea about how close to the door of the house it intended to draw the wagon, and being obstinate as a mule, it planted its four feet wide apart in an attitude worthy of Fitzjames when he cried, Come on, come all, this rocky shall fly, from its firm base as soon as I. If you were my horse, you would have to come, but seeing as you belong to my neighbor, it does not seem worth the trouble to make you said Pam, giving it a gracefully determined not to let the small difference of opinion between herself and the horse upset her for the joy of having Jack reach Ripple safe and sound. Sophie burst out of the door, coming at a run to welcome the traveler and chafing Pam because she could not manage the stupid old horse. If it were merely stupid, I could manage it fast enough, replied Pam. 
It is so crafty, and I lose my temper in trying to circumvent it. She went round to the back of the wagon as she spoke, and started to haul out the trunks which Jack had brought with him. What a lot of baggage for a boy, cried Sophie. Why, Jack, you must be quite a dandy. How many dress suits have you brought with you? Just you wait and see, chuckled Jack, who had come out of his quiet fit and was ready to answer chaff with chaff, to laugh and see the funny side of everything. Of course I need football togs and golfing duds and rowing rigs out and another set of nautical clothes for when I go out on my yacht. Then there are garments for sitting and for standing. There are things to sleep in and a swimming outfit, a set of go-to-meeting clothes, and and a court dress. Only I am afraid that won't be of much use in this part of the world, so for any reasonable offer, it will not be refused. Don't take any notice of him, Sophie, said Pam, who was laughing at his glib description of his fictitious wardrobe. The boxes are crammed with books and things about the house that Mother thought he might as well bring. I guess he has not many more clothes than that of what he's wearing, and even those will be outgrown in a few months at the rate at which he is going on. Shall we have a feed before I take the wagon back, or shall I drive the horse and wagon back to Mrs. Buckle straight away? Dinner is quite ready, and if you have it now, I can get the dishes washed while you are away, replied Sophie. Have it now, by all means. I am almost hungry enough to start eating the old horse, although by the look of the creature would be tough, said Jack. He ducked his head nearer to that of the animal and worked his jaw in such a fashion so fierce and suggestive that the horse suddenly started forward, drew the wagon close to the house door, and stopped again, while the three laughed until the tears came from over the success of Jack's maneuver. They carried the luggage into the house and tied the horse to the hitch post, and giving it a feed of hay, then went indoors to the dinner which Sophie had ready for them. It was so warm that they had the door wide open, letting the sunshine and the scent of trees and flowers and rippling notes of bobolink in the big red maple near the house. Oh, the forest was a delightful place on the day in early spring, and Pam, stealing glances at Jack's face, realized that behind the nonsense in which he was indulging, he was fighting back a whole storm of emotion. The two went off when the meal was over to restore the horse and wagon to Mrs. Buckle. When they came back, there would be the afternoon chores to get to, and a lot of other things which Pam had been forced to neglect in order to reach Hunt's Crossing in time to meet Jack. Even then, she had not reached the river until long after the boat had passed. Last summer, the boats up from Fredrickson had done the journey in the daytime, passing Hunt's Crossing in the afternoon. Now they left the wharf of the city at midnight, and so reached the nearest point of Ripple early in the day. Do we pass the fence that made all the trouble? Jack asked as the horse moved away from the hitching post and broke into a shambling trap when it found it had its head towards home. Yes, I will show you, said Pam, and then they began to talk over the mystery of their grandfather's disappearance afresh. I can't see why he needed to run away at all, said Jack. The two men quarreled and started to fight. I expect, and for an aught, we know grandfather might have been as badly hurt 
as the other man. He might even had crawled into the shelter of the trees to die. I say, Pam, where was it that the bones were found when you were sugaring? Anywhere near here? No, miles away in the opposite direction, she answered. Besides, you forget the money which had been taken from grandfather's desk. It was found with those remains. I thought, as you have done, that he might have crept into the woods to die, and I trampled through the undergrowth in every direction last fall. The police hunted, too, but he has been seen alive since then, you know. Jack nodded. I had forgotten that. I don't suppose it is of any use for me to try to spring new theories onto you, seeing that you have been on the spot and have had all the winter to think the matter around. You will have to be patient with me when I start any extra silly idea about it, but I can't rest until we don't know what has become of him. It does not seem right to enjoy being here either, for it is his place and not ours at all. Pam nodded her head sadly. That is just how I feel about it, but there are two sides to think of, and if we were not here, just think of how the place would go to ruin. We are doing our best for him and keeping the home together. If we can be happy while we are doing it, so much the better for us, and our happiness does not injure him if he is alive, nor is it any disrespect to him if he is gone. Jack gave a noncommittal grunt and then sat in silence, staring at the mighty trees which walled in the trail, or stood singly or in groups here and there, the lesser growths crowding about the big trunks like children round the mother's knee. There is Mrs. Buckle, and that is her house, Pam exclaimed presently, as they emerged from the forest and began to cross the fields. It is not strange that she has been one of my kindest friends. Yes, it seems to me against nature, he answered shortly. It is one of the things that makes me think that perhaps after all, Grandfather had no hand in hurting Sam Buckle, for if he had, her instincts would have been dead against her bringing friends with you. And a woman usually follows her instinct, while a man trusts to his judgment. You need not laugh. I told you I should be springing all sorts of silly theories upon you about every ten minutes or so. I am not going to laugh at you, said Pam, turning a face that was deeply troubled upon him. But Jack, if Grandfather did not hurt the other man, why did he disappear? Where is he now? And why is his axe found beside the poor fellow? Why, too, did Sam Bucko keep muttering that it was his right? I'm not a blooming detective, growled Jack, who was looking every bit as troubled as his sister. But this I do know, what there are mostly two ways of explaining everything, a wrong way and a right. It is possible that all, or nearly all, your reasonable exclamations are wrong ones after all. What solemn faces you have both got, exclaimed Mrs. Buckle, as she hurried to meet them. She told Jack that he was a very great acquisition, that the forest wanted young men more than it wanted anything, and that she was very glad indeed to see him there. Thank you, ma'am. I am sure that I am very glad to be here, said Jack politely, and then he followed Mrs. Buckle around her small domain, and then followed Mrs. Buckle around her small domain, listening in interested silence to all she had to say about things. He was as fond as most boys of talking and giving his opinion on this and that, but he was up against a most complete ignorance 
of the things she was discussing so that he had a sense to keep quiet until he knew something about it all. Then Pam came along from the barn. Then Pam came along to the barn where she had been to unhitch the horse, but because he was unwilling to go just yet, Jack pulled out his watch to see the time. Why, Jack, I did not know that you had a watch, cried Pam in surprise. Where did you get it from? I bought it in St. John's, replied Jack. Colonel Seaford came with mother to see me on board. He gave me a souvenir to do what with I liked. Mother said I had better have a look around the second-hand shops in St. John when I landed to see if I could buy a watch with the money, because she had not been able to get me one. I saw this priced at $3, and so I bought it. It is a jolly good one to go, and it is a fair size for the money. What an old-fashioned watch, cries Pam. It looks so good, though. See, Mrs. Buckle, wouldn't she say that it was a good one? Mrs. Buckle took the watch which Pam handed to her and turned it over in her hand. Pam noticed she was very pale. Then she pressed the spring that opened the back and immediately uttered a startled cry. It is Sam's watch that was stolen from him before he died. It was Pam's turn to become white now. Her cheeks were colorless and her eyes dilated with fear as she gasped. How do you know? How can you be sure of a thing like that? Mrs. Buckle held the watch to her with shaking hands. See that, she whispered hoarsely, just down there by the keyhole, M.P., that stands for Mose Pratt, which was my father's name. He scratched the initials there himself. Don't you see how he boggled the loop of the P? He said that it was easy enough to do the strokes. It was the curves that were the trouble. It was Sam's watch. I could swear to it before any jury in the Dominion. Do you see that mark there? It means the little dash by the side of the name. It stands for my father's marriage. The next little dash means to me he put it there when I was born. His record of blessing, he called it. Then the dot underneath was put when mother died and when father was dying. He used to say that he had been such a fortunate man for he had only one dot and two dashes. Mrs. Buckle broke down over her reminiscence and sobbed aloud. Jack looked supremely uncomfortable, just as if he would have liked to run away. It was Pam who realized what had to be done. You must give her the watch, the whispered was inaudible to the sobbing Mrs. Buckle, but Jack heard it and made a wry face, which was not to be wondered at. A boy's first watch is mostly a trusted possession, and Mrs. Buckle was only a stranger. He had not even lived in touch with the tragic happenings of all last fall, as Pam had done, so he was to be forgiven his momentary unwillingness to yield the watch he had valued so much. He was made of good stuff, though, for as Mrs. Buckle caught her breath on the extra big sob and looked up to put a request to him, before she could utter one word of it, he had thrust his hand out with a hasty movement and was saying hurriedly, You will keep the watch, of course. I had no idea that it had been stolen. I am very glad that I have been able to bring it back to you. Stolen, cried Pam, aghast at the word. Jack, grandfather must have taken it. We can't be sure of that. All the same, it was stolen. Whoever did it, seeing as it not his own, and said Jack with a sullen note in his voice, and he was turning away in great hurry, for the scene was too emotional for him, when he knocked against a man who had come upon the group without being noticed. 
and who was standing staring at the watch in Mrs. Buckle's hand. Hello, I beg your pardon, he said, expecting to be pulled up for his carelessness. The man took no notice of him, only stared at Mrs. Buckle, who, now becoming aware of his presence, held the watch toward him, saying eagerly, See here, Moose Paget, this boy, Mrs. Walsh brother, from England, has got my husband's watch, and I knew it again directly. Isn't it wonderful? The man shook his head slightly, then said in a gruff voice, I don't see anything very remarkable about it myself. Everyone knows that Rackperville stole the watch from poor Sam, so that must be natural that he should give it to his grandson. Jack flamed with a sudden wrath, and thrusting out his fist, he shook it within an inch of the tip of Moose Paget's nose. Are you insinuating that my grandfather was a thief? he asked, and Pam shivered at the thrill in his quiet voice. He was one of the most even-tempered people she ever knew, but when he did get roused, he flared into hotter anger than any of them. Mose laughed in a casual fashion that was infinitely irritating, then swung round with his back to Jack as if the boy was his righteous anger or a thing of no account at all. He addressed himself again to Mrs. Buckle. I have come to say that I can't take on that job we talked about. I had an offer to join a man out west, and he wants me to go tonight. But a bargain is a bargain, expounded Mrs. Buckle, who for the most forgot the miraculous finding of the treasured watch while she thrust out the matter in hand. You said that you would see me through the farm work this summer. You agreed upon the price and everything, and you can't back out now. Can't I? The man smiled in an ugly, aggravating fashion. I guess now my chance has come to better myself. I am going to take it. It isn't a woman that is going to turn me when I have made up my mind. I should be obliged if you would pay me what is owing as I have to get down river tonight so as to catch the cars for the west tomorrow. Mrs. Buckle's mouth set itself in lines of stern determination. I suppose I can't force you to stay here and keep your word, but I can do as I like about paying you, and not a cent piece shall you have before the end of the week. I am not used to paying every minute a lazy man who wants his money, and being a lone woman, I don't keep no hard cash worth speaking of in the house. Not being willing to have it stolen, if you want to go down river tonight, you will have to go without that money, and I will pay it to Reggie, or are you going to take him with you? No, I can't be bothered with a kid at my heels all day, rejoined Mose in a sulky tone. Pam felt again the swift repulsion for the man that was so nearly detested, and yet she had told herself that the man was not all bad, for had he not saved her life, and that at risk to his own. Well, you won't have the money. That is flat. I do not have it in the house for you, said Mrs. Buckle, and then she burst into a stormy invective because of the way he had treated her and going off in this fashion and leaving her with the summer's work on her hands. Pam stepped a little closer to her as the man turned away. Never mind, dear Mrs. Buckle, she said. Jack and I will see you through. We don't know much, it is true, but we are strong and can work, and we will take your land on as well as our own, so you will not be left in the lurch. Yes, we will. See you through. Never you fear, put in Jack. Then he burst out in a stormy fashion. You are not going to believe that grandfather is a thief, Mrs. Buckle. 
or that I knew I had no right to the watch? Of course not. What a silly boy it is. Miss Buckle looked up at the sky as if she were talking to someone above her head, and she took no notice at all of Mose Bugat, who hovered still in the background, as if to see if there was any chance that she would pay up. It is not at Ripple that I shall look when I want to find the thief. Don't you think that I have sense enough to know an honest man when I see one? Is it me you are wanting to call a thief? burst out Mose, looking as if he could do an inquiry there, and then, while his face was fairly convulsed with anger, Mrs. Buckle looked him over with a calm scorn that made him wince. I have always found you honest, she said, then added with a suspicion of malice in her tone, but then I have always believed that it was opportunity that made a thief, and it is precious little opportunity you have had in my house to anything but an honest man. You are right enough there, retorted Mose in a healthy sprite. Yours is reckoned the meanest house in the township, and the stuff that is thrown away would not keep a sparrow. The mice die from want of nourishment, and the one or two rats that I have seen were just walking skeletons. Talk about the tender mercies of a woman. Why, you are the meanest creature alive. Well, Amanda is fat enough, even if you vermin are thin, replied Mrs. Buckle with a jolly laugh at being able to get the last word. Then she said sternly, Now, Mose Puget, if you are not going to keep your side of the bargain, out you get, and that sharp, for I don't allow no lazy idle vagabonds to sauce me twice. Now then, get. For a moment, Mrs. Buckle stared into the face of the furious man while he glared back at her. Then, without another word, he swung round on his heel and took the trail which led east to the river, although his home was in the opposite direction. It looks funny that it does, Mrs. Buckle remarked as if talking to herself and seeming for the moment quite unaware of the others standing near her. Something has scared him pretty badly, or my name is not Martha Buckle. I don't believe he has ever seen anyone this morning. If any stranger has been about the place, surely I should have known about it. Perhaps he had the offer made to him yesterday, only did not feel disposed to take it, then put in Pam. Then, mindful of the long time they had been lingering, she said, We must go now, Mrs. Buckle, but there is one of us will be over tomorrow to see how you are getting on, and if you want us before that, just send Amanda to Ripple to fetch us. You can't go yet. I must know about this, said Mrs. Buckle, indicating the watch in her hand. Then I want to pay your brother the value of it. Oh, Jack, would not take the money for it, cried Pam, especially after that most hateful thing said by most began about grandfather having stolen it and given it to Jack. Of course I don't want to be paid for what was not my own, agreed Jack, but he was sore at heart all the same, for he had valued that watch very highly. It was such a substantial affair, and it made him feel as if he were almost, if not quite, a man. Mrs. Buckle left. Do you think I am really as hard up as I would have most baguette believe? She asked, and her voice dropped to a cautious undertone. It is quite true I have almost no money in the house, and I have kept none there ever since that mysterious theft from Ripple leaked out. But there are other places in which to keep money. 
you tell me how much this watch is worth to you, and then go into the house and sit down while I find the cash. Do you hear? Yes, but I am not going to do it, said Jack hurriedly. Come along, Pam, it is time we were marching. The two marched off in spite of Mrs. Buckle's protation, and when they were well on their way, Jack turned to Pam, demanding, What do you think now? I don't know what to think, she answered sadly. I think that you are all working on a wrong idea, and that poor old grandfather was as innocent as I am of any hand in hurting Sam Buckle. Jack's voice had a confident, happy ring that was almost inspiring. He had a host of theories, too, and he treated Pam to so many of them on the way back to Ripple that she arrived at home almost disposed to believe he might be right. Only the circumstantial evidence of the axe being found near to Sam Buckle and that other still more damaging fact of her grandfather's disappearance were so hard to explain away. Chapter 15. Pam's Big Adventure Never before had Pam realized how much one's brother might be to one. Those first days of Jack coming to Ripple would have spilled unalloyed happiness for her had not been for the trouble about her grandfather. It was no use to tell herself that she knew the old man was not a thief and that he would not have dreamed of robbing the man he had hurt so badly. The fear that he had done it in a moment of evil temper was always present with her to spoil her peace. She worried, too, as she thought of his suffering must have been when he was outcast from his home. In spite of all that, Jack and Sophie could say to the contrary. The fear was on her that the old man lay in the nameless grave where that little heap of bones found in the forest had been put. Laughing and talking with Jack, laboring hard with him over the tasks to which they were both so unaccustomed. Pam found it easy to be happy and to put even the remembrance of the troubles away. It was in the nights when sometimes she was too tired to sleep that the burden of the care dropped upon her and then she was acutely miserable as it was possible for a healthy girl to be. The poultry was increasing on her hands. One brood of chickens was safely hatched and the ten downy, fluffy chicks threatened to be great time-wasters. They were so dear and so cunning, but Sophie reminded her that she was out to make the place play, and that the chicks were either ornaments nor playthings, but just a detail of farm life, after which Pam hardened her heart and tore herself away to less congenial tasks. The pigs failed to rouse much enthusiasm in her, she was glad to resign the care of them to Jack, even though he was a six months younger to farm than she was, and ignorant of the proportion. Yet, in spite of this drawback, he was showing uncommon wisdom, or perhaps an adaptability, in looking after animals. When a litter of young was born, he was as enthusiastic over it as Pam was over the chickens. He talked largely of going in for pig breeding on a large scale, because, as he very truly said, people always want bacon for breakfast, so there would always be a market for his stuff. Pam only laughed at him and wrinkled her nose in a little grimace of disgust every time she came near his end of the barn. She was secretly delighted at the way in which he was taking hold of things and adapting himself to the new life. She had been afraid that he might hark back to city life, 
and want to be a clerk or something of that sort. The younger boys had never been so fond of books as Jack. She was now slow in understanding that his love of books arose from the honest desire for information and was not an indication of any wish for life in a city office. When Jack had been at Ripple two weeks, Sophie went home for a few days. She and her mother were going downriver to Fredrickson to buy a wedding frock, or at least the material for it. Nothing would suit Sophie but that she should make herself, and she was so expert with her needle, it would be folly to pay another to do work that would bring exquisite pleasure to herself. It was very strange at Ripple without her. Jack took his share of getting meals and in washing dishes, but all the same it was Pam who had to feel a great want. Sophie had been a comrade worth having. She had tact and sympathy. She never wanted to talk when Pam had a quiet fit, and she was so helpful in a quiet way that she had to go before it was possible to understand how useful she was. With Sophie away, Pam found it necessary to be in the house more. When the morning chores were done, Jack went off most days to help Nathan Grittis, who was planting corn and potatoes in the fields of Mrs. Buckle, and also on the clearing of land at Ripple. Reggie Furness, who did the chores for Mrs. Grittis, this place, was only a night and morning boy. That is to say, he had to go to school and was only available out of school hours. Left so much to herself, Pam decided that it was a fine chance for turning over the house upside down. She argued that if she didn't it thoroughly now, it would keep fairly tidy in the brief brilliance of summer weather when the outdoor work would be too pressing to allow much time for anything else. A spell of wet weather set in. Every day it rained and rained as if it would never leave off. The creek rose and rose until there was a danger that Mrs. Buckle would be cut off and the field in which her house stood made temporarily into an island. There was no such danger for Ripple, where the houses stood on rising ground, and the whole field distant on the swollen creek. But corn planting had to stop while the rain came down. Jack had more time for the work in the barn now, so Pam was freed from her campaign of scouring and scrubbing. Oh, how dirty the house was. Surely never had a place been as long without a spring clean as this comfortable old timber house at Ripple. The best sitting room had been a dumping ground for all manner of things during the winter. Extra firewood had been neatly stacked in a remote corner. Sophie had kept her big rolls of flannel and calico on the massive center table. All kinds of rubbish had gathered there, but now Pam meant that it should be clean, as clean as her mother's doubtless kept it in those long past days before Mrs. Walsh had run away to be married. It was a pouring wet day when Pam started on her campaign. The rain was coming down with a steady slant that promised more flooding later on. Jack wanted to help in the cleaning, but Pam thought he would be of more use elsewhere, so she suggested that he should go do all the work outside, chores, and get breakfast also, which would leave her free for her great campaign. This suited Jack finally. This suited Jack finally. He had scored a distant success in the making of Indian corn cake and buckwheat porridge, which was uncommonly good when eaten with maple syrup. He went to work with great zest when he came in from the barn 
while Pam, for her part, was busy sorting the lumber and carrying things which belonged to Sophie to a sanctuary on one of the clean rooms upstairs. Breakfast was about an hour late, but Pam was so hard at work that she did not notice that, although she was faint from want of food, when Jack called to her that it was ready, he apologized meekly enough for the delay, which had been owing to an accident. He had upset the porridge into the fire and had been obliged to make a fresh lot. Oh, Jack, it is just lovely for you to upset something, because in the past it was poor unlucky me who had all the accidents, cried Pam as she drew up the chair to the table and fell upon the second edition of porridge with keen appetite. It makes one feel so horribly mad with oneself. Such a silly thing to do, growled Jack, who was by way of being very cross over his stupidity. I suppose even that state of mind is rather an advantage than otherwise, since it takes away any tendency to swell the head, said Pam, as she helped herself to more syrup. Then abruptly she changed the subject. Jack, I wonder who it was that sold Sam Buckle's watch to the second-hand shop at St. John. Jack scraped the saucepan with great care, for he was not minded to waste any of the porridge, which had been bothered him so much in the making. Then he said with deliberation, If we knew so much, we should be more likely to be able to get the misery business cleared up. But you know what the manager said when we wrote to him and had so many men and during the winter selling their watches because they were hard up that it was impossible merely any details it is very mysterious said pam thoroughly still it is only reasonable that the man should not be able to remember there is one thing about it that bothers me though only one you are lucky there are around dozen bothering me at this very moment exclaimed jack and then he got up from his place at the table and went to fetch a letter which had been received from the manager of the second-hand shop at St. John's, where he had purchased the watch. One is enough for me at this minute, Pam went on with her face overcast. There was one man from here who went to St. John's during last fall, or just after the first snow came. I have only now remembered about it, you see. Here we only think of Fredrickson. St. John is out of the world to us. Who was the man? Out with it. And now we may get on a little. And Jack slapped his letter down on the table with great gusto and waited for Pam to speak. Oh, but it is horrid, mean of me, even to let such a thought come into my head, for he saved my life before he went. Pam looked so miserable, and she wore such an aspect of guilt that anyone to look at her would have thought she was the culprit. Do you mean most baguette? cried Jack, leaping to his feet with a startled air. He certainly went to Fredrickson, and I understood that he went farther, all the way to St. John, where he was very ill, and that poor little stepbrother of his was half-starved here at home. Then Jack just remembered it was at that moment when Mrs. Buckle recognized the watch that most baguette came along, saying he was going out west. No one had heard anything about him going off until that very minute, and he went straight away, not even to say goodbye to his brother, so Galena told me. Poor Galena, years ago when they were both quite young, they were lovers, but the thrift in her resented the unthrift in him, so they quarreled and parted. 
but she would have made a man out of him if anyone could. It might be hard on a woman to have to form her husband's character. I shan't expect my wife to form me, said Jack, with a squaring of his shoulders that made Pam laugh, for it was very evident that there would not be much for Jack's wife, if he had one, to do in the way of character forming. Then he went on, but I don't see that you have anything but coincidence to work on. Even if most Baguette was in St. John, you have no proof that it was he who stole the watch, although, of course, he might have done it. Then, as to throwing up his work for Mrs. Buckle, you must remember that he was coming to do it when he stumbled into the scene of her recognition of the watch. If he had not been coming to tell her that he was going to throw up the work, he would not have been there at that moment, don't you see? That disposes of clue number two, as you might call it. While always behind everything else, while always behind everything else we have, got to find a way why grandfather is missing. If he did not damage his neighbor, then why did he go? And who was it that stole the money from Ripple, whose bones were afterward gnawed by the wolves? Pam put her hand up in dismay. Don't, Jack, she protested. I feel sometimes as if my poor brain will give way under the strain of trying to think it all out and to supply a reason for everything. I should lie awake tonight to puzzle about it, only I am always so tired when I go to bed that I am asleep before I know I am sleepy, and the next thing I know is getting up time has come again. Oh, there is great compensation in hard work, for it most often stops hard worry. Well, go and get on with your cleaning. I will wash the dishes and get this room into shape, said Jack, rising from the table and stretching his arms high above his head. He always stretched himself to his full height after a meal, for someone had told him that it assisted growth, and he fairly yearned to be tall. His father had been rather short, and Jack was desperately afraid of falling in the matter of height. I wonder if it is ever going to leave off raining, Pam went through the door and peered out at the steady downpour. I want to scrub those rag carpets that I found tucked away in that old chest in Grandfather's room. It is my belief that he put them there because they were too dirty to lie on the floor. I think if I took them across the creek and washed them there, I should have plenty of water to rinse them, you see. They are as much too thick and heavy for the ordinary sort of washing, and they want such a lot of water too. Why don't you put them outside the, in the rain now? Then they would have a chance to get soaked. Jack's wisdom was mostly equal to the demand for it, and Pam was quick to avail herself of it. Leave the dishes, Jack dear, and I will get my Macintosh and rubbers. While you bring the little truck from the barn, we will pile the carpets on the truck and take them across the field to the side of the creek and hang them in the safe place where they are not likely to be washed away. I don't want Grandfather's rag carpets traveling to Fredrickson by water. If we hang them over there, it will save carrying them out about while they are wet, and they can stay there until they are dry, for of course they will be fearfully heavy when they are full of water. Jack went for the truck while Pam got into waterproof and rubbers as quick as she could. Then she dragged out the heavy homemade rugs, the work of her mother and her grandfather, which she had found stowed away in safety, but so plastered with dirt that it was quite impossible to use them until they had been cleaned. 
Sophie had told her months ago that they would have to be washed and that it was of no use to think of it until the snow melted and they could be rinsed in the abundance of water. She offered to do the work herself, but Pam was not reminded to pile up the burden of her indebtedness more than could be helped. Sophie had been like an angel to her all through the dreary days of that long, anxious winter. This heavy, dirty task of rug washing was to be got over before she came back, and Pam decided that there was no time like the present. One of the rugs was so heavy that Pam could barely fit it alone when it was dry, and when it was wet, lifting it would be quite out of the question. There were stout loops of cord under the fringe, and Pam had threatened a length of rope through these which had been meant to fasten to the tree on the bank of the creek. Then, with her rug safely moored, she could beat it with a stick until it was clean, while the running water would wash the dirt away. They loaded the rugs onto the truck, then needlessly of the pouring rain started to drag it across the field. What heavy work it was, neither of them was of the looking-back sort. However, and so despite mud, rain, and the heaviness of the truck, they toiled on reaching the cluster of trees growing at the edge of the swollen creek, and by the dint of furious exertion succeeded in getting the rugs afloat and mourned into the branches of the trees. They were hot and tired. It rained harder than ever, but they felt so successful that they were ready to shout in triumph over their achievement. The water is rising fast. Oh, Jack, I think you ought to get over and see how Mrs. Buckle and Amanda are getting on, said Pam, as they turned back from the creek. I will do the breakfast dishes before I go back to my cleaning. If Mrs. Buckle is drowned out, tell her she can come over here to stay until the floods go down. Right, oh, shall I help you tow the truck home first, or will you leave it here until the laundry work is done? He asked, swinging his hand with a flourish to the rugs that were fastened to the branches. Leave it here and go straight. Since I have seen how high the water is, I felt rather bad because we have been so wrapped in our own concerns this morning. Stay and help Mrs. Buckle if she needs it. One's duty to one's neighbor is of first importance in this lonely part of the world, you know, and I can manage very well, for I can easily leave undone the things I cannot do. Pam laughed as she turned away to go back to the house, and Jack echoed her laughter as he went along the back of the creek to Mrs. Buckle's house. The hours sped away. Pam was so busy she scarcely noticed their going. The big sitting room was as clean as hands could make it. The breakfast dishes were washed, and she was busy putting the big kitchen into what she called normal tidiness when she was startled by a blaze of sunshine. They had hardly seen the sun for days and days while the rain had poured down with dreary persistence. She looked at the clock then and was surprised to find that it was long past noon. Jack had not come back. Doubtless Mrs. Buckle had need of him and would give him some dinner there. Pam sighed with thankfulness to think there was no need for her to worry about getting a meal. She got herself some food, which she shared with the dog, and then having fed the chickens, which were clamoring loud about the door, she put on her hat, and taking a stout stick from the woodpile, went across the field to the creek, reveling in the warmth and the beauty of the sunshine, and humming a little tune, because she felt so very cheerful. The creek was higher than ever, 
One of the rugs had been lifted so high that it had floated off its morning branch and had started down on the Down Creek trip, but had happily caught on the trail of brambles a little distance down, where it had momentarily held. It is lucky I happened along just as I did, she murmured, and after some skillful handling with her big stick, she retrieved the right rug. She towed it back to the morning and proceeded to beat it, laying on the strokes with great vigor, although the arms were beginning to ache with all the work she had done that day. She was raising so much water with her active strokes that in spite of her waterproof, there seemed a likelihood of her getting wet through when she was startled by the amount of wreckage floating past. There were boxes and barrels, a chicken coop or two, and a bamboo chair, which rode on swiftly flowing, which rode on the swiftly flowing current, with an air of raggish irresponsibility that would have been amusing if it had not been so horridly suggestive of someone's drowned out home. I wonder what is the matter and whose house had been flooded, she said, and then she stood leaning over on her stick, surveying the wreckage which was coming faster and faster, while the creek was crowded with all sorts of things sailing along. A shrill screaming smote on her ear, and the sound of her heart seemed to stand still. Instinctively, she looked for something to cling to, and catching the branch to which the biggest rug was moored, stood and peered upstream to get the first possible glimpse of what was coming. A big table with its legs upmost was careening downstream, and crouching on it was a drenched figure of a small white-faced boy who was uttering shrill cries for help. She had seen him before, but where? Even as she asked herself the question, there flashed across her mind the remembrance of the inquiry in the doctor's wagon's house and the small boy who made grimace at her when she came out. The bitter injustice of the insult had struck her again, and it came across her now. There had been no reason, so far as she could see, why he would have treated her in such a fashion, and she was still in the dark as to the cause. I will put him out, and then he shall tell me the little wrench, she murmured, and the thought of possible danger to herself never even entered her head. Plunging down into the water until it was up to her waist, she started shouting her loudest to attract his attention, and waving her stick to make him see that it was a helping hand. The branch would not let her go far enough, but by catching the rug that had floated more to the branch, she was able to get ever so much farther out. Luckily, the creek did not seem to be very deep at that place, and the footing was firm. The boy had seen her now and was shrieking to her to help him and to save him from being drowned. Catch hold of the stick, she screamed, realizing that she could barely reach him even now, and as she could not swim, it would be madness to venture beyond the reach of the floating rug. If I had not been washing those carpets, I could have done nothing for him, she gasped, and then caught her breath sharply, for stretch her arm as she might. She could not get her stick within reach of his hand. In another moment, he would be beyond reach. The current flowed so fast. She must get him. She must. Putting her foot forward with a cautious movement, she found firm ground, and letting the rug go, she thrust the stick out farther, and had the joy feeling of it gripped but the jerk almost upset her, and she reeled, recovering herself by great effort, and tugged as the pole to tow the boy, 
and the table and shore. Some more wreckage punted into the table from behind, and it came on her with a jerk. The pole slipped from her grasp, and she was down before she had time to see that the table was going to strike her. There was a wild cry from the boy, who felt himself lost, and then Pam made a great effort and found herself clinging to the table leg while the boy clung to her. His grip, a frantic clutch that had more danger for her in it than anything else, as she knew full well, but she could not get free of him, and she would have to get him to the bank somehow, or be drowned with him. Then she noticed that some of the wreckage in front of her had been caught by something and was piling into a barrier. It might not hold many minutes, but if it held long enough for her to reach the bank with the boy, it was all that she asked for. Then, with a noise in her ears as someone calling, and she realized so dazed by her great effort that she thought it was her mother, reminding her of some neglected duty, as had been so often the case in those faraway days when duty had no meaning for her beyond an unpleasant something not to always be shrieked. Ah, her feet touched the bottom. She could do it after all. A feeble shout of triumph burst from her lips and was echoed by the boy who had plainly plucked of sorts, although he was so desperately afraid of water. Even as the shout left her lips, Pam was down again, and this time she seemed to have no strength to pull herself up. She felt it was all over, and there was even a pang because she could never know why that small boy had been so rude to her. Then something struck her with a force that hurt. She was dragged up and tugged here and pulled there. Someone was working hard to get her ashore and panting heavily in the process, but she could not help. She could not do anything but struggle to get her breath and to marvel that she was still alive. At first she could not even open her eyes, and she seemed to be slipping, slipping while a great black void waited to swallow her up. When she heard a voice in her ears calling to her, and she strove with all her might to answer, Jack, Jack, I did not know that you were here. Her voice was so feeble that she was even surprised herself at how little noises she can make. It is lucky that I was coming along the creek when you fell, he answered. His tone was jerky, opening her eyes again. Pam felt half frightened by the look on his face. Was it such a near thing? Poor old Jack. Pam felt a leaping joy at her heart to think he cared so much. She had been so homesick all the winter that it seemed worthwhile being brought to such a pitch as this. Just to have surprised that look of adoring affection in her brother's eyes. Then she remembered the boy, who was the cause of all the trouble, and she cried out sharply, Where is the boy? Surely he is not drowned. I tried so hard to save him. The thought that she might have tried in vain was too much for Pam. She saw the black void open close to her once more, and she was slipping and slipping again. And then she heard the burst of noise crying and a shrill voice calling, Can she do nothing to save her? She is dying, I say, she is dying, and I never told her. It seemed to Pam that she was slipping to the very edge of the void, the slight further movement, and she would be gone beyond the recall. But she clung, poised, as it were, while Jack sharply said, Help me bring her around, can't you? It is of no good to howl like that. I might have told her, though, and now it is too late, wailed the boy, and the sharp curiosity 
in the heart of Pan drew her back again from the edge of the void. Chapter 16 Where did he go? There was a stirring of wind in the willows at the side of the creek. Some wreckage swung gently against a box laden with tinware that was taking a hurled voyage downstream, and the collision brought a chiming protest from the tinware that made Pam think of church bells in England. She struggled for strength to speak and tried to lift her hands to clutch at something that would hold her back from the awful gulf into which she had nearly slipped. What was it the boy had to tell her, and why, oh why, had he made a grimace at her that day the inquiry was held on the remains found in the forest? Better, old girl? Jack's voice sounded so waggly and anxious that Pam could have laughed for sheer joy because she cared so much. The love in it warmed her like sunshine, and she stowed with all her might to keep from slipping down, down, down. The noise crying broke out again. Then she heard a voice that was fierce and passionate, demanding, Can't you do something to bring her round? Dab water in her face or something like that? It seems to me that she has had too much water already, replied Jack's troubled voice. If I could leave her, I would run back to Mrs. Buckle. Don Grinson is there. He would go and fetch his father for me quickly. That he would, you bet. They say he just about worships the ground she walks on, and he has always been a regular stand-off-ish sort. A hot feeling like blush surged over Pam, and she made another effort to open her eyes, to speak, and to let them know how she was. But before she could achieve so much, the boy had burst out again. I say, do fan her or something. Burnt feathers is good for swooning folks, Miss Kitten says, but we ain't got no burnt feathers here. That is what you have got to tell me? Say it quick. The authority in Pam's voice was not to be set aside. She struggled to rise and felt Jack's arms under her, holding her up in a sitting posture. The broad stream of sunshine smote her eyes, making her blink. Then she opened her eyes again and saw the boy whom she had tried to save sitting on the ground at a little distance, his small thin face all wrinkled and drawn with pain, his eyes pathetic with distress. What is it that you ought to have told me? She asked with hurry in her voice, some instinct telling her that this thing, whatever it was, mattered a great deal to her, and she must know without delay. The boy hesitated. A gleam of fear came into his eyes, and then he blurted out in great hurry. The old man couldn't have done Sam Bunkle in. I know he couldn't. There wouldn't have been time. It was as if a rush of new life swept through the veins of Pam, pushing aside the supporting arms of Jack. He crawled across to where the boy was lying. It seemed to her that she could not trust herself on her feet just yet, for there was no strength in her limbs. Tell me what you mean, she said with sharp insistence. How do you know that Grandfather did not hurt Sam Buckle? Because I went to Ripple to warn the old man they were going to have a surprise party at his place that night. It is hateful having a surprise party come to your house when you don't know that they are coming, said the boy, looking at Pam with a wistful hunger gaze that made her feel she wanted to cry out of sheer pity for all the limitations and deprivation that the poor child's life had plainly known. Who are you and where do you come from? She asked gently. The sunshine was streaming down on her now and she was feeling much stronger for the genial warmth that took away 
the deadly chill from her immersion in the creek. I am Reggie Furness, most baguette's half-brother. I thought you knowed, he said. There was a surprise in his tone, and Pam was at once curious as to the feelings were hurt because he was so little importance in the place that she had lived in the district so many months without making his acquaintance. Reggie Furness, then, why did you make grimaces at me that day when I came from the inquiry in the doctor's wagon's house? There was a blank bewilderment in Pam's tone. She wanted to ask at least half a dozen questions in a breath. And yet, as she was so weak and stupid that she could not scarcely collect her facilities for coherent speech, the boy's eyes fell, and when he answered, there was a shamed note in his tone. It was of pure spite. I knew it would put something right, but I wasn't going to then, because it might have hurt Mose. I've always stuck by Mose, ever since Mom died. Powerful set on Mose she was, though she knowed his weak place better than most. She told me to take care of him for her, and she said it would be good for his character to have me to provide for, but it seems to me that I've mostly had to provide for myself or to do without. I couldn't do it all right enough if it was not for the time wasted every day in going to school. That is where the trouble comes in. Why would it have hurt most for you to tell? asked Pam, and there was a swift to discovery that her question had embarrassed the boy so sorely that she must quick to recover her blunder by another query. Never mind that now. Tell me what Grandfather said to you when you came to warn him, and how it is that you can be so positive he did not hurt Mrs. Buckle's husband. Reggie gave a wriggle, then winced as he had hurt himself. The old man was downright nasty. It wouldn't have hurt him to have given me a quarter for my trouble, or if he hadn't the cash to spare, he might have given me a chunk of food. I can mostly do with a bit of something to eat, he said, with a wan smile that made Pam feel she wanted to cry more than ever. She thrust out a wet and dirty hand to give the boy a reassuring pat on the arm, then sighed for him to go on. She was so anxious, she was too anxious to know what he had to tell to have any notice to spare for the supreme discomfort of her condition. He didn't give me nothing, went on Reggie. He only growled out that if the surprise party came, they might find that they would get a surprise themselves that they had not bargained for. Then I asked him straight out what I was to have for my trouble. He just said he would set the dog on me if I did not clear out sharp. He called the dog, but I didn't want to wait for the thing to come at me. It didn't seem worthwhile bringing the creature into the business especially as I had no stick nor anything to help me in putting up a fight. I just peeled back to the schoolhouse as hard as I could go, and when I got there, it was fifteen minutes past two o'clock. Are you quite sure, quite positive about the time, demanded Pam, with devouring eagerness? Reggie gave a weak gurgle of laughter. Sure and certain, declared school arms, she lay a stroke a minute when we are late at noon spell, we can't help being late in the mornings, you see, so she says she will take good care that we aren't encouraged in wasting time in the middle of the day. She is uncommonly smart with the stick, and I went sore for days after that. Why did you not tell this before, cried Pam, an anger in her tone. Just think of the misery I might have been saved. 
Why should I tell? cried the boy bitterly. The old man was not even ordinarily civil to me, yet I had taken all the trouble for him. I was afraid and reckoned that the less said, the better. What were you afraid of? asked Pam. Reggie gave another wriggle. My leg hurts something awful. Do you expect that I have broken it? he demanded, and now there was a whine in his voice as if he was purposely calling attention to his suffering in order to draw Pam's notice from things he did not want to have discussed just then. Are you hurt? she asked in a quick sympathy. She had not noticed his position before. It is either spring or a break, put in Jack. The poor kid was hurt when he came sailing down the stream on the table. Amanda saw him slipping out along past Mrs. Buckle's house, and she came screaming to warn me, for he shouted to her that he was hurt and could not help himself. I came fast as I could, and it was lucky I did, for I was only just in time to pull you out. There is the trunk, exclaimed Pam, waving her arms toward the trunk which had been left to carry the rugs back in the house. We can put him on that and wheel him to the house. Then you must go for the doctor, Jack. Perhaps Mrs. Buckle will lend you the horse, and you can stick it on back if you try hard enough. Don is at Mrs. Buckle's, helping to make a dam to keep the water out. He will go for the doctor, said Jack. Then Pam suddenly remembered what she had heard Reggie saying when she lay in her half swoon, and she blushed right up to the roots of her hair that it was so absurd for people to put sentimental construction on every little appearance of friendship between Don and herself. He was her very good friend, just as Sophie was, and that was all. It was stupid to blush like a little schoolgirl. Pam was painfully conscious of a quizzical look from Jack as he brought the truck to the place where Reggie was sitting, and then, of course, she blushed harder than ever. Reggie was lifted into the truck, with considerable difficulty. He might be thin and small to look at, but it took all the strength of Pam and Jack to lift him, while his moans and groans when they touched him made Pam feel so bad that she didn't know just how to bear it. The task pulling the truck across the sodden field was heavy too. She and Jack pressed forward shoulder to shoulder, and she had a queer spent feeling as if it would give up the next moment and slip to the ground. What makes the kids so certain that Grandfather had no hand in hurting Sam Buckle? asked Jack. His hand was close to hers as they drew the heavy truck, and they could talk in low tones without the danger of Reggie hearing what they had to say. It is the time that settles it, replied Pam. It would take Reggie nearly an hour to go from Ripple to the schoolhouse, though he might do it in three quarters if he ran all the way. That would make it half past one when he left Ripple in a hurry. Because Grandfather set the dog at him, it was just one when Sam Buckle left his home that day, and he had not been gone ten minutes by the clock, when Mrs. Buckle remembered he had taken the keys with him, and that she would want them when the man from the store came with the week's groceries. It would take her from twenty minutes to a half hour to walk to our boundary from her house, which would bring her to the place about the time Reggie was starting away from Ripple. When she got to the fence, she found her husband lying on the ground unconscious and so fearfully battered that at first she thought he must be dead. Grandfather's axe lay on the ground near to him, and it was not wonderful 
knowing as she did of the feud between them, that she believed Grandfather had done it. Ripple was the nearest place to run for help, but she would not be likely to come here under the circumstances. Indeed, she could not leave her husband to go anywhere but for help at first. She found he was just alive, and so she was set to work in keeping him from slipping away. It was five o'clock before she was able to get any help of any kind. Even then, it was only little Amanda Higgins who had happened that way around on going home from school because Mrs. Buckle had promised her some cookies. It was nearly seven before the neighbors arrived to carry the poor man to his home, and then the police and the doctor had been sent for. Jack drew a long breath. It is something to know that Grandfather did not do a thing like that. But why did he go away? But why did he go away? It looks as if he had something to be ashamed of. Anyhow, the puzzle seems to grow rather than decrease. Don't you think so? Pam nodded. She was so fearfully out of breath, and she was feeling so exhausted that she had no strength left for any more speculation just then. She could not even feel properly glad over the lifting of one cloud, so afraid was she that another was going to brood close over her. There must have been some strong reason for her grandfather going away and remaining absent, and she quailed at least the reason might be one to be ashamed of. It is not easy to take rosy views of things when one is drenched to the skin with muddy water and aching from head to foot. Hope and courage would spring again presently, but just now they were low and down, and nothing would have been easier than for Pam to collapse in a miserable heap and burst into crying. Her pride saved her. Talk of the sin of pride. A few sermons from the virtues of the proper sort would not be out of place in some phase of life and living, for certain is that many men and women would give up the struggle to present a brave face to the world, but for the same proper pride. Pam took her share of dragging the truck, and when the house was reached, she helped Jack to carry Reggie to the bedroom that had been her grandfather's. Then she left her brother to the task of getting the boy to bed while she ran upstairs and slipped into clean, dry clothes. Oh, the comfort of having a clean face and feeling dry. Pam suddenly felt pounds better. Half her aches and pains vanished, and she hurried down to help Jack and to insist that he too should stay for dry clothes before he went off to Mrs. Buckle to send Don to bring the doctor. It was easy to see that Reggie was in a rather bad way, and Pam, having had but little experience of sickness, would have had been thankful to shift the burden of caring for him on to someone else. When Jack had gone, and she was left alone with him, his moans and cries were incessant. His mind was not clear. Very often when she bent over him trying to make him more comfortable, he thought she was Mose, and he would look up at her with a face full of reproach, crying out that he should not have stole the money, that stolen goods were of no use to anyone. The waiting for the doctor was about the hardest thing Pam had done to bear for some time. The boy's face was flushed with fever, and he was talking in a high-pitched tone that sounded weird and unnatural. His relevations about his home life were to the last degree pathetic, and always he was reminding himself that he had promised his dying mother to do what he could to keep his brother straight. Jack came back and set to work on the evening chores, leaving Pam free to remain in the house. It was necessary that someone should be with the boy every minute now, 
for he thought himself afloat on the table again. And he was all the time trying to throw himself out of bed in the hopes of reaching the bank. His horror of water was very great, and he felt himself drowning every minute. Here comes Dr. Grinson, and Sophie is with him, shouted Jack, putting his head in at the door of the best sitting room, and Pam uttered a little cry of thankfulness, for she had wanted Sophie that afternoon more than words could express. It was dreadful to feel so helpless and to be able to do so little. Broken leg, said the doctor. You will have your work cut out, Mrs. Walsh, but there is no help for it. He can't be moved. Sophie will stay, though, and the neighbors will do what they can. The trouble is that the boy has no reserve strength. Poor child, he has been so nearly starved, too, that the shock of this kind will certainly make things go hard with him. You don't think that he will die, do you? demanded Pam, with blank dismay on his face. If Reggie died, her grandfather's name could not be cleared. Such an issue to the boy's present condition was too dreadful to be thought of. His life must be saved somehow. Doctors never think their patients are going to die, replied Dr. Grinson curtly. I said that the boy has no reserve of strength, so that he would be more ill than an ordinary case of fracture would warrant. That is to say, he will be very feverish, and he will wander in his mind a great deal. He will need a great deal of nursing, too, and I expect he will be very bad-tempered and difficult to manage. As I said before, you are going to have your hands full. Anything more? she asked with a comical gesture of pretend despair. But you have not frightened me yet, and he's going to be nursed back to strength if care and painstaking can accomplish it. He had told me today that he could prove Grandfather was here at Ripple, at the time when Sam Buckle was so knocked about, if he can clear the name of the poor old man, neither Jack nor myself can grudge the work of nursing him. If he can do that, why has he not done it already? asked the doctor. He was in the kitchen now, sitting by the stove and drinking a cup of tea that Jack had made for him while he was busy with Reggie. He was angry with Grandfather, who had not treated him well, explained Pam, and then she plunged into the story which the boy had told her, and how he came to Ripple to warn Rack Burville of the surprise party that was coming, and did not get even thanks for his trouble. It hurt her considerably to have to tell that part, but she must be just, and the old man's treatment of the boy had not been fair or kind either. Told on the surprise party, did he? chuckled the doctor. I am not so very much surprised at keeping quiet about it for Galena would have certainly had been very wrathful if she had known. She was the head and the front of the affair, and she is spirited too. But Mrs. Walsh, that does but deepen the mystery, because if your grandfather had done nothing to be ashamed of, why did he disappear in such a strange fashion? He must have dropped everything and gone. The only explanation that I can think of is that something happened to him in the forest, and we have never found his body, said Pam. Not likely, objected the doctor, supposing that he had dropped dead from unsuspected heart disease or anything that sort. He would have fallen on the open trail, and his body would have been found. Then, if he did not do the damage to Sam Buckle, why did the poor chap keep muttering that it was his right, always that it was his right? Then, remembering the rumor of the old man having been seen in the lumber camp, how could it be explained? I don't know, 
It is mysterious to me as it is to you, said Pam, drawing a long breath. Then she looked into the face of the doctor, and seeing steadfast light in her eyes, was slight to see as she continued, I am quite sure that Reggie has told the truth. He had nothing to do with gains by telling me, but perhaps a good deal to lose, for Galena can be harsh sometimes, and he works there, you see. It has given me hope. I can hold up my head and look people in the face again. Now I know Grandfather did not do that shameful thing. Oh, you cannot think how I have suffered in my pride because of it. Yes, I can, because I know how proud you are, the doctor rose to go, and stood looking at Pam with a good deal of kindness in his gaze. He liked her very much, and he guessed that his son liked her still more. It was just at that moment that there came a swift run of feet across the best sitting room. The door was flung hastily open, and Sophie appeared on the threshold, crying urgently, Oh, father, do come back again before you go, for the boy is saying such dreadful things. Chapter 17 What Reggie Suspects His eyes bright and his face flushed with fever. Reggie Furness was sitting up in bed, talking rapidly in a low tone. What is the matter, old fellow? asked the doctor, entering the room with Sophie greatly perturbed at his heels while Pam brought up the rear and stood halting on the threshold, as if uncertain whether to go in or remain outside. It is Moe's, only I didn't like to say so. Reggie turned his flushed face to the doctor, talking rapidly, as if he was afraid he would forget what he wanted to say. Mose hated Sam Buckle like poison. He talked, too, when he had too much to drink. I used to be afraid he would say something when folks was around, but he always seemed to know enough to hold his tongue then. I don't see why he should hate him so much. The doctor's tone had a note of query in it, and he frowned a little. The wanderings of a feverish patient were not to be trusted, and this would create prejudice against Mo's forget, which would be grossly unfair if the things Reggie was babbling of were untrue. Reggie laughed in an unmirthful fashion. Things have always gone against our Mo's, but he ain't a bad sort at the bottom, not when he doesn't forget, that is. I told Ma I would stick by him and keep him straight when I could. I've done it too, only now he's gone away. Didn't even stop to say goodbye to me. He didn't look as if he didn't care a red cent whether I lived or died. We'll go to sleep now and leave Mose alone till you feel better, the doctor said soothingly. Then he laid Reggie down in bed and drew the covers over him and waited until his eyes closed and he seemed to sleep. It is of no use to take any notice of what the boy says while he's in this condition, he said then drawing Sophie out of the room and closing the door so that Reggie could not be disturbed. When he comes to his senses, he will most likely have forgotten everything he has said. Are you too afraid to be left here alone with him? I dare say Mrs. Buckle would come over and lend you a hand until he gets a bit more in his right mind. I am not afraid, said Pam sturdily. I don't think that I want Mrs. Buckle here at the present. Just think how hard it would be for her to hear all this talk of the poor boys. We, we will manage somehow, and we have Jack now, you know. We shall do very well, agreed Sophie, who still looked white and scared. I called you because I thought you ought to do it for the sake of Pam. But if you don't think there is any truth in what he is saying, of course there is no use taking any notice of it. I did not say there was no truth in it. I said it would not be regarded as evidence, corrected her father. 
What we have to do is to nurse the boy back to health and strength, and when he is better, see if he will tell us what he knows, if he really knows anything, that is. But there must be no mention of this in any conscious spell that he may have. Now I must be going. I have to go over to Hunt's Crossing, and I want to get home before dark if I can. By the way, do you know how the boy got his hurt? Jack says the water began to come into the house where Reggie lives. He was trying to save the furniture when some upstream wreckage crashed into the side of the house and the crazy old place collapsed. The boy escaped by miracle and managed to scramble onto the table, which was upside down. He was carried past Mrs. Buckle in that fashion, but they were all too busy there, trying to barricade the house to keep the water out, that they did not see him until it was too late. Jack started in pursuit, and it was lucky for me that he did, for I was in difficulty when he reached our frontage on the creek. I am not much good where water is concerned. I can't swim, and I have the most fearful terror of water, too. Pam shivered as she spoke, and the whole grim struggle seemed to come back upon her. Again, she was fighting to keep on her feet in the swirling brown current while she strove to toad the table and the boy to the bank. The doctor nodded in complete understanding, then said in his most businesslike manner, Suppose you go straight to bed now and lie there until dawn. Then you can get up and relieve Sophie. The evening chores bothering you, are they? He laughed as Pam began on a spirited objection to being sent to bed like a naughty child in broad daylight. Jack can manage them. He is downright capable chap. But I don't want you for a patient tomorrow, so you must do as you are told. It was of no use to protest. Pam felt so bad that she was very thankful to be spared anything further in the way of exertion. She was so tired, too, that she went fast asleep directly her head touched the pillow, and she knew nothing more until the first gray glimmer of dawn began to steal over the tops of the forest trees. She sprang up then, intent on relieving Sophie. Hastily dressing, she stole downstairs, walked softly across the best sitting room, and gently pushed open the door of the bedroom, which stood ajar. Sophie was fast asleep, her head resting on the side of the bed. Reggie was asleep too, and he looked such a small boy, his face pinched and white and pathetic, that Pam could have wept in sheer pity as she looked at him. She withdrew as softly as she had entered, and going out to the kitchen set to work to rouse the fire in the stove and to make coffee. She would not disturb Sophie yet, better to sleep in an uncomfortable position than not sleep at all. Breakfast was ready, a very early breakfast, and the big kitchen was full of the odors of coffee, fried bacon, and toast, when Pam went across to the bedroom carrying a cup of milk for the invalid and some toast. Sophie woke then, cramped, stiff, and miserable, and was ordered out to the kitchen to have her breakfast, while Pam stayed to look after the patient, who was also awake. The old dog had entered the room behind her and stood wagging a friendly tail by way of welcome to the boy on the bed. The animal was used to fresh faces now, and being of a friendly disposition, was ready to welcome everyone that came. Better are you? asked Pam briskly. She put the milk down by the side of the bed and stood looking at the boy with kindly pity in her eyes. He was so small and thin that it was to the last degree pathetic to think of him staying alone and shivering to make a living for himself since Mose had deserted him. I suppose so, only things seem queer, he answered with an uneasy look around as if he were in search of something. 
People always feel queer when they have broken a leg, but time will mend it, and you will be all the better for the rest in bed. I expect you will grow a bit too, Pam spoke in the cheeriest possible tone, and then she added with intent to make him laugh. Jack says my brother Greg grew so much when he lay in bed ill with rheumatoid fever that when he was able to get up, they had to buy new clothes for him because the old ones were too small. Reggie looked frightened. If that happens to me, he rejoined, I shall have to sew myself into a sack, for I have no more clothes, nor any money to buy them. I am a dreadful scared because of the doctor, and all the rest of it. Of course I can work it all out, but it takes time, and going to school makes such a difference. I get up directly, it comes to daylight. Then by school time I am so sleepy, I can't see the figures of my sums, and I am dreaming before I can even think of dozing. School ma- lays on me for that, and no mistake, my word, she is a rare one at fighting. Pam laughed, but her heart was very sore, and she felt she wanted to put her head down beside Reggie and cry from sheer pity. Instead, she gave him a reassuring pat on the shoulder and said kindly, Don't you worry about expense. The doctor won't charge you for coming to see you, and we shan't charge you for taking care of you, so you can feel as if you are away from home on a visit and you need to have no worries about anything. Then when you are better, you can go on earning your living, unless your brother comes back to take care of you. The reference of Moe's was unfortunate. The light which had come into the eyes of Reggie at her words faded into a look of apprehension, and his face set in itself in lines of care, while his voice was an anxious whisper as he said, Moe's won't come back. He has quit for good, and all. If only he had taken me with him, I would have cared, but it wasn't plain fair to leave me behind. Pam had a choking sensation, and her eyes were smarting with tears, but it would never do to let him see them, so she made an effort to say lightly, Perhaps you felt that you would be happier here among the people you know. You have regular work with Mrs. Giddings, and perhaps she will let you sleep there, now that your house has been washed away. I've lost that, answered the boy with dumb hopelessness misery in his face. When did you lose it, and why, she demanded. She supposed that he had been up to some mischievous prank that had angered Galena, whose patience was not the most long-suffering kind. When she hears that I came here to warn the old man about the surprise party, she won't never forgive me, he said in a shamed tone. She can't abide folks that run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. She says you ought to be true to one side or the other, and it was she who told me about the surprise party, you see. Then I came straight here and told the old man, you can't clear him without letting on to Miss Gritton's that I told, and she won't get over it, not if I know anything about it. You lie still and try not to worry, said Pam, hopefully. More wonderful things have happened than that. You may have Miss Gritton's come to see you one of these fine days, for she is kind-hearted sort. Reggie shook his head. I know her better than you, he said, and Pam would not deny that he did. She likes you until you do something that makes her despise you. Then she never gets over it. Mose and she were going to get married an awful long time ago, when I was a kid, but they quarreled and she never got over it. Then one night there was a surprise party came to our house when we were in bed. We hadn't food nor fire, no nothing that time, and Mose and me were just squirmed inside at having all of them laughing, joking, dressed-up folks coming to find how poor we were. They were just dressed up, 
like grand folks in books, and Mose he went on at Galena, that is, Miss Gittens, you know, in the most awful way because her smart rig-out folks said that she had helped to get up to that surprise party because she wanted to make up with Mose. But after that, of course, they were worse than ever. Still, she found work for you, Pam said gently, though his bitter confidence made her feel unhappy. There wasn't no one else to go to, he answered with great finality. The only other boy that lives near enough to do chores on Gittin's place and tend school is Jose Higgins, and his folks have got enough for him to do at home. I don't know how they will get on without me, and I was downright fond of the beast of things. Pam comforted poor sore-hearted Reggie to the best of her abilities, but when the days went past and Galena Gittins made no sign, she began to realize with some consternation that the boy was right in his estimate of his late employer. The doctor had been to see the schoolteacher, who at once confirmed Reggie's statement as to the number of strokes of the cane he had received on that particular day. She even showed the doctor the punishment record, which she kept, and he read for himself the entry in her neat handwriting to the effect that Reggie Furness, being fifteen minutes late for afternoon school, had received fifteen strokes of the cane. There was nothing like method, said the doctor with a smile, and he handed her back the book and thought how easy the record would make it for Rack Prevail to prove his alibi on that particular day. If he ever came back, that was, which at present seemed doubtful. No, there is nothing like method, agreed the teacher, and then she added, it is of no use to make rules and not keep to them. I do not thrash the boys and girls because I like to do it, or because it gratifies some brutal instinct in me. Indeed, I hate it, but because I have said that I would do it, I keep my word. It is the only thing which will bring them to school in time, and so, unpleasantly though it is, I do as part of my duty. The doctor nodded and went away, but it was noticeable afterwards when people complained to him that the teacher was so fond of punishing that he always stood up in her defense, declaring that it was not love of it, but merely an honorable desire to keep her word. The days were hard for the three at Ripple. Reggie was very ill and needed nursing night and day. Mrs. Buckle came over when she could, but it was the busy time of year. She had a great flock of turkeys hatched, and they needed about as much care as if they had been babies. Even Mrs. Higgins, the hard-working mother of Amanda, put in two or three nights of sitting up, so that Pam and Sophie might not be worn out, and everyone except Galena, who was as kind could be. Then the fever abated, and Reggie began to get better. The doctor only came once a day instead of twice, and even took to missing a day once in a way, and sending Don over instead to know how the boy was getting on. At least that was what Don said he came for, and although Sophie screwed her face into an understanding smile, she was loyal enough to her brother not to give him away by announcing that the doctor never paid a proxy visit of that sort. Don drove a frisky, high-stepping colt, which he had bred himself and was very proud of. He said the creature needed exercise, and when he came to inquire after Reggie, he would take Pam for a drive across the forest just to keep the colt in proper trim, so he said. Pam enjoyed the swift motion, the fresh air, and the absence of fatigue, as only a very hard-working person can enjoy anything. Don was so beguiling in his conversation, too, 
and he knew so much that she was won into forgetfulness of her worries, and that is in itself a benefit indeed. The question of money was always upmost. It was quite astonishing what a little they lived upon, but there was so little coming in, of course. Of course there was money for the black spruce, but both Pam and Jack would have gone hungry any day rather than touch that. Reggie's confession would save their grandfather from having to stand trial for his wounding Sam Buckle, but all the same the old man might need money very sorely, and in any case it was not theirs. By the end of May some of the crops were coming in and needed careful hoeing. The livestock was increasing in number and in size, and there was a look of prosperity about Ripple which the place had not worn for many long years past, and in spite of the tightness of money, it was marvelous to Pam what a lot of their wants the farm supplied. Milk they had in generous supply, and butter. There were enough potatoes in the cellar to feed them, and the pigs and poultry, until potatoes came again. Eggs they had also, but as these were in great demand, they mostly went to help out the store account, whilst the healthy folk ate corn, porridge, and milk. Flour they had to buy, but not much else. Jack had snared quite a lot of hares, and these served to vary the bacon, which was home-cured, and other meats they did not buy. Pam was realizing that she was learning to be thrifty in spite of herself. While Jack was satisfied with anything in the way of food, and would not have been inclined to complain if she had asked him to eat nothing but baked potatoes and buckwheat porridge every day until harvest came round. In the days of Reggie's slow convalescence, Pam, who knew him best, discovered that he was worrying himself almost dreadfully because of Galena's attitude. Something would have to be done, and that was certain. Pam could not very well keep him at Ripple, indefinitely, for she hoped that her mother would consent to bring the children over in a month or two, even if Mrs. Walsh decided that she would stay in England for another winter. It was still not advisable to keep Reggie at Ripple. The boy knew everything there was to be known about life in the country, and Jack knew only what he had been able to pick up since he had come to Canada. Reggie was of the very dominant sort, and from a very superiority of knowledge, he would come to the front and stay there, which would not be good for him, nor yet for Jack. Then Pam had a bright idea, and the next time Don drove over to Ripple to exercise that tireless colt, she asked him if he would drive her over to Gibson's farm, because she had important business with Galena. I will drive you anywhere with the greatest pleasure, responded Don, with a warmth, but Pam was also absorbed that she did not even blush. She was so hard-driven that she had no time to be self-conscious, these days, and this doubtless added to her charm in Don's eyes, although he could not help being a trifle resentful sometimes because she was so oblivious of his attentions. It was the last week in May. The fevered warmth of spring and sunshine had made the forest foliage a sight to see. The young and tender greens, freshened by last night's rain, were at their very best and most beautiful stage. There were flowers everywhere, and the ground was carpeted in place with mosaics of color. Why do people live in the cities when the country is so beautiful, demanded Pam, in a tone of positive awe, and her gaze roamed over the open spaces and the vistas of green which stretched away on either side. People love their own species better than nature, answered Don, 
with a rare wisdom which sometimes characterized quiet folk, so they herd together, the closer the better, and find their happiness so. Half of them don't need any pity, for they would be just miserable if they had to live alone with nature. I have never been in the woods in springtime before, said Pam, who was drawing deep breaths of pure ecstasy. Every day shows some new miracle, and I tell myself it was worthwhile enduring the winter to have the glory of the spring. Nathan Grittens had just come home from a long day of seeding at a little farm high up on the hill beyond the ridge, where the winter lingered long and was very loath to go, yet the high ground was astonishingly fertile and responded more quickly to tillage than ever the sheltered valleys, so the long journey and hard work were worthwhile. Only Nathan had not come home in the most amenable of tempers, for he missed Reggie at every turn, and he often had to get the food for the horses ready himself after a long day afield, if Galena happened to be hard-pressed indoors. This was the case tonight. Don, who understood about such things, tied the horse to the hitching post and went across to the barn to help, while Pam, quaking inwardly, betook herself indoors to do her errand with Galena. Miss Kittens was on her dignity tonight, a deeply injured person she felt herself, and she showed it in every line of her body as she darted to and fro getting supper, but her manners were equal to the demand hospitality made upon her, and she pressed Pam to save to supper with real cordiality, albeit she was exceedingly dignified, a pose that did not suit her because it was unnatural. I have had supper, thank you, and I could not eat anything more if I tried. I am very sorry, though your cookies do look most delightful. I can't think of how it is you do it. Mine never come out so well. It is use, replied Galena. I was doing that sort of thing when you were in your cradle, and I have been doing it ever since. Well, I suppose you hardly saw a cookie until you came to live at Rupel. That is it, I suppose, and so I may expect to become proficient by the time I am gray-haired. Galena, why have you never been over to see that poor boy since his accident? Pam fired her question at Galena with such disconcerting suddenness that she too was taken aback to consider her reply, and so blunt out the plain, unvanished truth. I do not want to have anything to do with a miserable little sneak that worms himself into my confidence and then goes hot-foot to tell why he is found out. I have no use for two-faced people. Neither have I in an ordinary way, said Pam quietly. She had gently elbowed Galena from the stove and was briskly stirring Nathan's porridge herself. It was the first thing she saw that she could do, and for doing it, left Galena's hands free for something else. But do you know why he did it? I mean, do you know why he went off to Ripple that day to warn Grandfather about the surprise party? To earn a quarter, I suppose. It is just disgusting to see young children so set on getting money by fair means or foul. I have no patience with it. Galena was quite splendid in her wrath, but Pam's eyes were suddenly dim with tears. He did want money, I know, she said quietly, but he did not get it for Grandfather, set the dog on him in return for his kindness and having come to warn him. Kindness, snorted Galena, with her head in the air, and she set a dish on the table with so much emphasis that the contents were spilled onto the tablecloth. Pam wanted to laugh, but managed to keep her grave face. She knew that Galena hated to spill things, and this was only Tuesday, 
So she would have to look at that spoiled tablecloth every day for the rest of the week, which would be punishment enough for her without anything else. I think it was kindness, said Pam quietly. It must be dreadful to have a set of people you do not care for coming to take forcible possession of your house sometime when you have gone or are just going to bed to have them go poking and prying through your private places and seeing all the miserable little shifts that you have to make to present a decent front to the world. Oh, it must be hateful. You would not realize it yourself because you have never been poor. I don't mean that you have not had to want something you could not have, but you have never had to make all sorts of miserable little shifts to keep people from finding out how poor you were. But you went to more than one surprise party yourself last winter, and you enjoyed it as much as anyone, or at least you appeared to, burst out Galena, showing quick resentment, for she thought it was the idea that Pam was attacking. I know that I did, answered Pam. Indeed, I never enjoyed a frolic more in my life than the night we came here to surprise you and your brother. But then you had nothing to hide. You were friends with every one of us. There was food in your larder and firing in its proper place. You had tablecloths and dishes and everything else that was needed. But how would you have left if you had gone to bed without any supper or next to none? If there had been no firing in the house and your only tablecloth was torn old newspaper, not too clean, well, the house was in the state of the most abject poverty that you can imagine. Your grandfather's house was not like that, cried Galena in amazement and indignant astonishment. Why, you were there and saw it yourself. I know, said Pam, whose heart was beating very fast, but I did not think of grandfather just then. I was showing you the position of Reggie's standpoint. We cannot correctly judge other people's motives unless we can see things from their viewpoint. You blame him for going to Ripple to tell Grandfather that the surprise party was coming, yet you are forgetting how Reggie and his brother suffered from the same inflection of most mistaken kindness. It was because he and Mose Paget had suffered so fiercely in their pride that Reggie went to Ripple that day. Mose Paget has no pride. He would not be where he is today if he had a grain of pride worth having. He is a bedrock lazy too, burst out Galena. I dare say he is not much good, or he would not have left poor Reggie as he has done, admitted Pam rather ruefully. She hated to have to speak against Mose because of his goodness to her on that never-to-be-forgotten day when she stumbled on the lynxes at the ruined house on the old tote road. Still, perhaps he had pride of sort, only he got so badly wounded that he could not rise above it. People are like that sometimes. But Reggie, that I am concerned about, I have come to ask you to forgive him and to let him come back here to work when he gets better. He is downright useful, I will say that for him, and we are most lost without him, admitted Galena, but I should hate to have anyone about that I could not trust, and it will always be coming up against him in my mind that he played me false before. You will get over that. Try him again and see, urged Pam, then Don called to her, and that it was time to be going, and she had to leave things uncertain whether she had scored a success or failed.